Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Curtis Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Welcome to yet another episode of Lions Love by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today is one third of the zoo crew. Well, I guess I'm also considered part of the zoo. I have shocks with me today. <laughs> <laughs> if the whole zoo crew isn't here, does that technically make us a petting zoo podcast? Yeah, I mean, we're like uh, we're like one of those farm to table uh, <laughs> farm to table podcasts. Right, we're a farm to table podcast today. Like, you know where everything's coming from. Uh, it's all natural ingredients, and uh, you know we have a little lemon for scurvy. Does that mean I get to arbitrarily jack up the prices of all the Patreon costs if it's farm to table? Yes, yeah, and sweet. You, and uh, we're gonna have to have like a like a long protracted monologue about like where each ingredient in the podcast came from. I'm grass fed long pig from the Detroit farm. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. That's also how I always describe you to people. Yeah, thankfully, um, we're not actually surprisingly, I should say, we're not talking about cannibalism today. We're going to talk about something that we have bandied about for quite some time now. And I have honestly no idea if those episodes have come out yet when we're recording this because um, I'm a bad podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> I work weeks at a time uh, in case of emergencies. But we're talking about the bounty mutiny or the, the mutiny of the HMAV bounty and accidentally... The entire history of the Pitcairn Islands, <laughs> which that's that, that's fun. I should warn everybody: this episode is subtitled "The History of Rape Incest Island." Um, so, if that bothers you, maybe turn this one off. That's going to be your only warning. Uh, I'm going to take a nice sip of of my non-alcoholic beverage to prepare myself for this. Um, if you're feeling real sporty, you can listen to like maybe the first half, uh, but then it's going to get real grim. Yeah, yeah, it's really towards the end that gets real bad. We can't talk about the bounty mutiny unless we talk about the guy that's kind of in the center of all of it. And that's a man named William Bly. Uh, something of a accidental Forrest Gump when it comes to British naval history in the Pacific in the later <laughs> decades of the 18th century. To include the, uh, the current territory that I am sitting on. I think we've made the joke before, uh, or at least me and somebody else made the joke before, that the only good part about Valentine's Day is that's when Captain Cook was murdered on the big island here in Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, the, Bly was there for that as well. Now, Bly was born in Devon, England in 1754 to a harbor master father and a mother who had been previously widowed and only married his dad uh, at the age of 40, probably because being a single woman in the mid-1700s was... Not a great lifestyle choice to have. Shocks, you can probably speak a little bit more to this, but like a lot of people of his age, when you grow up near ports or harbors or whatever, that's that's going to be what you do. Yeah. And like uh, people in the Devon area, I guess, during the 1700s, almost as like a pipeline into the Royal Navy and various fishing boats. 
you've talked before about how this is generally the same thing in the area where you grew up. Now, what age would you think that if you were, say, a fisherman or or whatever um, that ended up in one of the boats going out of mass, what age would you be generally? I mean, I don't know. It, could, it would really span the game. And I can't even... I mean, I will say that the practice of like kind of going from being in a maritime community to like making that your career was really a thing really up through like World War II. Like even if you look at a lot of the folks who enlisted in, uh, you know, the Navy or the Coast Guard around, you know, you know, World War One or World War Two, those were all people who, you know, had grown up, you know, uh, or a lot of times in maritime communities, like, you know, around here, like in Gloucester and Newport and Boston, New Bedford, like, you know, down the Cape, uh, you know, Plymouth. Um, I mean, I would imagine that, you know, probably maybe eight, 10, you know, you'd probably start like going down the boats, uh, you know, at least like doing like some basic like seamanship shit, even if you're not actually like going out at like as like the crew on like a merchant ship or something. But I mean, it would also just be like your entire life. Like everyone you fucking know would be, a you know, a fisherman or like would be a merchant mariner or something like, you know, or like or involved in the industry in some way. If you weren't, you know, you'd be building ships, you'd be, you know, your parents would work for the fucking store that stocked them up, you know, something like that. Okay, so I'm glad that I can be shocked by all of this simultaneously. Because I knew the history of the Royal Navy specifically. They had something called uh, Young Gentlemen. Yeah. Which, no, I'm, I'm not shitting on the English any more than I need to. I promise everybody did this in the West and also the East and pretty much everybody with an organized Navy. But so Bly ended up in the Navy at the tender age of seven, which... Yeah. Is pretty complex. All right, so for an American um, uh, military uh, comparison, the USS Constitution, uh, for instance, during the the War of eighteen twelve, had a full thirty four children on board during combat. Um, now, most of these were powder monkeys, uh, which I mean, uh, maybe this is a topic for another episode. Legitimately, one of the most dangerous fucking jobs you could have. Of <laughs> uh, like children scampering about handling explosives while under fire. It also sounds a lot like Nevada now, to be honest. <laughs> Powder monkey just sounds like a cursed NFT now. <laughs> oh, I right clicked on this NFT and it blew my fucking fingers off with a naval cannon. <laughs> now, like the powder monkeys were generally like if we were to end up on a boat, we would be the powder monkeys as children because we're low class trash. Yeah. Uh, but Bly kind of had connections. His dad wasn't his dad was a customs officer. He wasn't anything to write home about or anything, but that gave him connections within the government. And that got him into the young gentleman category, which is like you serve in various rates within the Royal Navy until you have enough sea time under your tiny little belt to qualify for full commission as a naval officer. Yeah, you're kind of like a like a butter bar in waiting, more or yeah, less. Yeah, you pretty much just get immersed in uh, naval culture. You don't really learn anything because, again, literal child. <laughs> um, but if you were a young gentleman, you you ate better, you slept better, and you were treated better than the enlisted counterparts to include the ch- other children. Uh, yeah. Normally in the Royal Navy, this started at age 12, but it was not uncommon for people to just lie or like glad hand behind the door deals, which... Again, is how people got promoted anyway. Uh, it was favors and money, politicking, um, uh, mostly just making clout work for you. Yeah, I mean, famously too. I mean, this was also the the system pretty much in every branch of the you know the royal forces. Like, oh yeah, the, yeah. But the Crimean War was the one that uh, really like sparked some change, right? 
Yeah, we talked about that during um, our Charger Light Brigade episode. Yeah, that, that was finally the breaking point as far as like, uh, maybe these guys need to go to school or something. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out uh, actually just letting a whole bunch of fancy lads lead us into a conflict is an actually a recipe for success all the time. Anyway, let's fast forward to 1914. <laughs> now, Bly was under the age of 12. Like I said, he was seven, but that wasn't super uncommon. But starting in the Navy so young, this might be an unpopular opinion to, uh, to maybe naval aficionados out there, which I have said time and time again, I am not. It turns these kids into bloodthirsty psychopaths, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> this one easy trick. Yeah. Uh, now, the reason for this is the concept of discipline within the army at the time was much easier enforced, mostly yeah, like because it. you were never too far away from anything. Uh, obviously, physical violence was the name of the game in the army as well. But also, it was easier to keep in line in the, the larger structural system of the army. You were never going to be 10,000 miles away from the nearest command. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, supervisor or whatever or or like you know like at the very end of the day like even if, if everything really went sideways you could always like run the fuck away and like you know try to like make a life for yourself wherever the fuck you ended up or something that wasn't such the case in the navy every ship was kept in line through rigid discipline and by rigid discipline i i mean abuse uh in a systematic yeah. level that borders on sadistic <laughs> yeah that would that would probably like shock the soviets and like that's really like saying a thing yeah i mean it's it's on par if i'm um, just much smaller scale uh each ship ship operated in a semi like a semi-independent city with internal hierarchies justices and responsibilities uh and all of these things had to work as close as you could get to a well-oiled machine uh for the boat to function in its capacity. So if a sailor broke one of those laws, his punishment was swift, brutal, and sometimes fatal. Uh, and the, the main point was not to punish that man, but was to set an example for everybody else. So these were all done in front of audiences uh, to include literal children. The simplest reprimands were often denying privileges, like having rations and stuff like that, uh, which was like normally the first thing they did. Like the first thing they did was implement starvation. Yeah. And fun fact, that was the thing that uh, the Navy could do to you. And I think at least up until a few years ago was uh, reduce you to bread and water. The U.S. Navy is like a completely alien thing to me. I never once worked with them while I was in the military. And every yeah. time I learned something new about them, like, oh, you guys are still have like one foot solidly in the 1800s. And I, and I think this is also just like part of like maritime culture is like there's always kind of a, a very firmly rooted, uh, I don't know, I guess firmly rooted in history. And sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. I mean, yeah, the the hearkening to tradition. Yeah, they're, they you know, and there's part of that just because like there's certain things you like, you know, you as a tank officer did or not tank officer, like as a tanker did not put that uh, fucking evil on right? me. <laughs> you, 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 as a, you as a tanker did it like, you know, uh, learn how to like navigate a tank by like riding a fucking horse. But, uh, you know, meanwhile, like cadets, you know, for the fucking Coast Guard still sail aboard the Eagle and like learn how to navigate with like a sextant and shit that's wild you know i mean like that's you know something where there there's just there is that kind of like heavy force of tradition that uh that does still carry down and i'm sure the like there's people that listening right now that were like on the big fleet or whatever and whatever the fuck they call it the navy but like i had a friend of mine said something that like he was on an aircraft carrier like they had separate stairways for officers and enlisted like you oh, couldn't yeah. That's fucking bizarre to me. Like different yeah, mess rooms, everything. Yeah, se separate wardrooms. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, like 
Famously, too, one of the things, and this is you know, uh, top tip for those out there if you're thinking about joining the Navy. Uh, if your recruiter offers you a school that you don't think you can actually get through, don't take it because that's how you end up being like the fucking bilge wipe on an aircraft carrier and seeing daylight like maybe once every like, I don't know, fucking month at a time. Yeah. Unless you're a topside rate or, you know, like an officer or, you know, involved with like an aviation deck or something, you might get out to like the smoke pick, but that's about it. That's why for all of the complaints I have with the army, of which they are, you know, countless, at least as stuck up as our officers could be, they were never like Navy officers <laughs> because that's, yeah. that's a completely different level of, I, I don't even know what, uh, it's like a different fucking country. Even in the Coast Guard, it's different because we don't really have as big of an officer corps and a lot of things are just held like smaller units are commanded by senior enlisted uh, and whatever. So like it varies even from the Navy. It's entirely separate creature. Mm. That makes sense. We started off with ration having uh, the next step up was caning, which is exactly what it sounds like. And it was normally like that doesn't sound too bad. And I'm sure it sucks. Like it, 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 someone said it hurt for weeks at a time. Uh, and that was normally reserved for the the young gentlemen or like the powder monkeys, um, because next one after that's flogging with a cat of nine tails. Uh, and that would just kill a child. Yeah, that just like takes all the skin off your back. And sometimes it also killed adults through infection and stuff. Because remember, this is the 1700s. Uh, if yeah. you get infected, it's like, oh, well, he's got too much ghosts in his blood time for him to die. Yeah, particularly because, uh, you know, your surgeon is just also the cook on the ship and they just like lay you out of the fucking table in the mess hall. This is the barber surgeon or something. Actually, we get to yeah. talk about a surgeon later who is uh, quite fun. He's not. <laughs> he, he kills the guy. Uh, <laughs> and then after that is just hanging you uh, in fr- again. And it's not like a short drop or, or whatever. You just like get slow strangulation, I think, from the masthead. Yeah. While, while everybody else watches. So all these are done in front of the crew, which, again, includes young children. And many of these young children, the young gentlemen, were to be expected to implement these punishments later on in life. And this is even accounting for all the wanton violence and like systemic rape that was just part of Navy life at the time. Or, you know, impressment or like other th- like that was the other thing, too, is this might not be anything you signed up for in any way. They could just like snatch your ass. Yeah, you can get hammered at a bar and wake up on a boat getting fucking hit with a cane or whatever. So, yeah, great place to have kids. I mean, for example, impressment wasn't taken out of the Royal Navy until right before the War of 1812, which is you know why we fought it. Even by the time we fought it, the problem was done. But, you know, we're yeah. America. We don't let, like... Not having a reason to do a war stop us from doing a war. Yeah, listen, if we got a fucking pretext, we're going to use that fucking pretext. (laughs) Bly's career would lead him to be a crewman on Captain James Cook's HMS Resolution, uh, where, like I already pointed out, he watched his captain get murdered on the beaches of the Big Island in Hawaii in 1779. And the reason for this, and maybe one day I'll do an episode about Cook, is that he decided it'd be a really good idea to kidnap a couple locals uh, and... Fun fact, that's unpopular. You, you don't do that. You, <laughs> you die. Now, about 10 years after that, in 1786, Bly was commanding his own ships as a merchant captain. In August of 1787, he took command of the bounty with the uh, Her Majesty or His Majesty's armed ship bounty. The first person he recruited to his ship was a man named Fletcher Christian. Uh, someone will become important later on as a, as a master mate, which is uh, kind of like the guy in charge of all the minutia on board. Um, now, the reason for this is because they'd actually worked together before on the HMS Britannia, and they seem to be friends or at least know each other enough to want to continue working together. 
Yeah, or and you know we're able to work together. Yeah, especially from um, a captain's perspective. For and Bly is a fucking dickhead. Uh, I, I don't talk about this during the rest of the episode. This would not be the last time that Bly was the captain of a ship that would be mutinied. Uh, or be the victim of a mutiny or whatever. It happened two other times. So Bly is a dick. And despite <laughs> the fact that the most well-known book written about the bounty mutiny is by him. So like, there's two different stories where Bly is a vicious, maniacal asshole. And then there's the one that Bly wrote, which is all of my sailors hate me in every boat I've ever been on with for no reason. So yeah, uh, he's a dick. <laughs> if only there was some common link here. Oh, well, that's fine. This is another one of those stories that there is no good guy uh, in this story. And it does seem like Fletcher Christian was perfectly fine with Bly being a violent asshole as long as it wasn't directed at him. So they continued working together. Now, the bounty was a 220-ton cutter with a crew of 46. Bly was its only commissioned officer. Since it was a trade mission into what was considered safe waters, it traveled alone with no other ships. Furthermore, it was not given the normal contingent of Royal Marines that most ships had. These Marines would be used for a lot of different reasons, mostly for self-protection, because the ships make a lot of stops on various ports to include some that are not ports, just random islands uh, for, you know, wood and water and and food. So Marines would go aboard and make sure if, um, you know, any any natives happen to be mad that some random white dudes on boat showed up and started stealing their shit that uh, their, their, you know, their ground crews wouldn't get killed. Another thing that they did was they were the ones that normally implemented the punishments. Yeah. And they happen to be handy for shooting people who wanted to mutiny. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, and that's also, too, why a lot of these punishments are so brutal. I mean, the, you know, the common turn of phrases, there's nothing so much like a god on earth as a captain on a ship. And, oh, right. Uh, and the reason why all these punishments were brutal is because ultimately you would have, you know, particularly back then, uh, you needed, you know, hundreds of dudes to run the rigging and run the ship and haul the anchor and do whatever else. And they would be com- commanded by comparative, like, handful of officers, as we'll come to find out, you know, if you just, you know, through sheer force of numbers, like they couldn't kill you all. So if you just wanted to like murder the shit out of your officers, if there wasn't a lot of more Royal Marines in the way, you had to really have the fear of God put into you, which is why they did what they did. Not to excuse it. It was still wicked fucked up, but that was like the motivating ethos behind it. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to say they're wrong in the mutiny. It's everything else that they did that was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Their mission was to sail to the island of Tahiti uh, to load up breadfruit saplings. Uh, because now, if you remember the date that we're talking about here, that whole uh, American colony thing was getting all revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> it cut off the English supply of, of cheap fish, which they would use to feed their slave population in the West Indies. Uh, so they had to find a replacement for fish. Enter a guy named Joseph Banks. He was a botanist who discovered breadfruit for, I say discovered, but he went to an island that already had people on it and discovered it. Um, So, (laughs) uh, and pointed out that this breadfruit is like nutritious enough to fill the gap of the lack of fish supply. So like, hey, if we go to Tahiti and load up on this shit, we can feed our slaves with it. I found some cheap food that's just enough to keep our slaves alive. Uh, so here you yeah. go, guys. I'm sure there couldn't be any any possible nutritional de- uh, deficiencies by feeding people a diet of fruit uh, yeah. and only fruit. And like once again, too, like you know, really underscores that everyone involved in this is a fucking asshole. I mean, from from the get go, it starts off as a slave supply mission. Yeah, about <laughs> <laughs> that says like you know, like really like a uh, really fucking gallant like. All right, guys, we're going to go halfway across the world to, like, 
pick up some plants so we could like you know feed our slaves just enough that they don't immediately die when you start working them to death. Yeah, we gotta get we gotta get a couple hours of labor out of them before they keel over. Yeah, Bly and his crew assumed that the trip to Tahiti would be easy or as easy as a mission in the Royal Navy could be. Unfortunately, <laughs> that was not the case. Now. The normal like route that the that the bounty would take in the situation when going to Tahiti would be leaving from its port in Spithead, England, which I'm sure is pronounced incorrectly because it's England, and also I don't care. Uh, and going around South America's uh, Cape there uh, to get into the Pacific uh, Islands. I think it's Cape Horn, I believe. However, this area is also known for consistently terrible weather, and that prevented them from doing that. So. Uh, <laughs> But that didn't stop Bly from trying, and he constantly pushed his men for a month to try to get through the bad weather, which really only ended with his ship being damaged and his crew being very tired and angry at him. <laughs> uh, this led Bly to fire his uh, sailing master, a guy named John Fryer, and appointing Fletcher Christian, also in that role. Uh, now, Fryer doesn't support either side of this mutiny, and he does live to tell us he, he hates everybody um, and says that the, <laughs> this only happened because Christian was a yes man to the captain, which due to their history together, I'm going to assume that's probably true. Yeah. And it was decided that the only way to continue their mission would be to take the longest way around possible. And that is around South Africa's uh, Cape Angulas and Cape of Good Hope which would require the crossing the entire width of the Indian Ocean to, in order to get to Tahiti. This is literally the longest way they could have taken without, I don't know, crossing over the Arctic or something. Yeah, I mean, they would have taken the Panama Canal, but actually the, uh, the HMS Ever Given was stuck there at the time. Uh, some, some say it's still stuck there to this day. The Indian Ocean is not exactly the easiest place to sail through, I guess. Uh, it's constantly battered by more storms and apparently not as bad as they would have been off the coast of South America. So they managed to make their way through, but it did take them 10 months and 27,000 miles longer than it should have. <laughs> so which in nautical terms is known as a real bitch. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to assume by the time they got there, the crew was not a, uh, not the happiest bunch, not enthused, not really stoked on uh, having this take, you know, uh, <laughs> like three times as long as it probably should have. Yeah, and because they ran late, like the the crop isn't ready, they have to wait longer. You know, this that the other thing. Now, during the slow, horrible journey, by accounts of virtually the entire crew, Bly took every little frustration out on everyone around him. Except, you know, he never took any possible failure onto himself. It was always somebody else. So tensions were uh, pretty high by the time they got to Tahiti. And this is according to the sailors. According to Bly, he never had to punish anybody other than his surgeon, who was apparently an alcoholic. Perfect. <laughs> this punishment was connected to uh, during the trip. The surgeon accidentally killed a sailor during a bloodletting session for asthma treatment. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I hate when the uh, the you know when the ghosts don't go out your lungs. You know, you have to get them out through the blood. You know, I mean, it's just it's just science, really. Yeah, they they tried to um, uh, take his alcohol away from him. And the doctor apparently convinced him that if you took the alcohol away, he would die, which honestly might be true. Uh, this guy was an alcoholic by 1700s Navy standards. <laughs> yeah, like like everyone is already getting their like, you know, like flagon of grog a day. And this dude is like, you know, like even more three sheets to the wind. Yeah, I mean, I use the term doctor loosely because it's the 1700s and they call him a surgeon on purpose. 
Um, doctors, more doctors and surgery is is more of a a, more vibe. Of a vibe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yep, yep, kill the sailor because his asthma got blood in it or whatever. Throw him overboard, which is what they did. <laughs> um, so that yeah, that's what the punishment came from. His uh, medical opinion that if they took booze away from him, he'd probably die was probably his uh, most correct medical opinion that he was probably going to have on this trip. 100%. Yeah. Uh, and in October of 1788, the ship finally reached Tahiti. Now, none of the men other than the captain had been there before. Uh, and they had been told all of these stories that Tahiti was a land of milk and honey as paradise and earth, which I assume was a low bar when you've spent months trapped on the bounty, uh, almost a year. Also, I've heard Tahiti is very nice. I mean, specific island. I'm sure it's beautiful. And by all accounts, that's exactly what they found. And their lives suddenly were much easier than they had been during their entire time in the Navy up until that point. Now, because of their delay, uh, the breadfruit trees, like their plan was to get there in a couple of months because, I mean, it's still a sailboat. It goes pretty slow. Uh, at which point they would have to farm until the uh, the breadfruit until they were big enough to be transported. They thought this would only take a couple of months at most. But because it took them 10 months to get there, the season, I guess it wasn't breadfruit season or whatever, um, because you know, even though it's tropical island, we do have seasons in tropical islands uh, and grow seasons are very weird uh, when you have to worry about tropical sun and humidity and shit. Yeah. I've killed so many plants here. <laughs> so it took them, uh, they realized they have to start. And because of the time of the year, it was going to take them, uh, it ended up taking them five months Jesus. to grow the breadfruit. All of the the sailors, like their, their day jobs turned into like whatever little repairs they had to do around the boat because, you know, it's a sailboat and it breaks just sitting there. Uh, but they would spend most of their days going out to the field, working on these little breadfruit trees, of which there were several hundred. And that was it. It only took them a few hours a day. They had botanists on board whose whole job was to make sure they, these idiot sailors didn't kill the trees. Um, but it, they even like moved off the boat into the villages, effectively assimilating into the community of Tahiti, uh, who liked them. Um, like The locals in Tahiti were very friendly with the British. They've had multiple contacts with them over the years before and including the French. Like the white people were not new or, or hostile to them. Uh, that would change. <laughs> so they would work during the day. And then at night, they just cut loose, uh, just drink constantly. And uh, when I say the locals are very friendly, I mean, they were down to fuck. Uh, and this is a boat full of sailors that we're talking about here. And not only a boat full of sailors, a boat full of sailors that have been only around each other for like 10 months. Uh, yeah, almost a year. Yeah. Now... I do have to say that there's a mix of relations in Tahiti between the sailors and the local population. One was a strictly exchange-based fucking, as you can imagine. Life on Tahiti may have been way more chill than being in the, the Royal Navy, but it's still a rough place to live. It's still the 1700s, so simple things were hard to come by. So uh, Tahitian women traded sexual favors for food, clothing, and even sometimes just a handful of nails. Um, like to build with. But that wasn't always the case. Uh, like sometimes they like Tahitian women and the sailors b- built meaningful relationships and several people got married. Uh, so like you, you get both sides here and, you know, because sailors being sailors and not to mention this being again, the 1700s, there wasn't anything resembling safe sex happening here. So STDs just rip through the population of the ship. Now I say the ship and not the island because one of the things that the surgeon did before allowing anybody off the ship is examine them for any uh, evidence of STDs, common STDs of the day, right? Found none of them. But 
Tahiti was a normal port of call for other Navy ships from the British and the French. So other British ships and French ships had spread STDs to the Tahitian population, which then the crew of the Bounty picked up. They're uh, they're just picking up what someone else laid down. You know, they're just... Yeah. Uh, they're just it's all about free love and unfortunately also um about not being able to pee without it burning a little bit. Yeah. Um and so eventually a full forty percent of the crew would catch one STD or another with no treatment. I don't think there's any real treatment of the day. Uh other wow. than like I I guess just drinking more rum and then finding someone else to fuck you for a, a handful of nails. <laughs> the only treatment was to like, you know, slowly be driven insane from syphilis. That was really right. all you got, you know, like that's there's no John F. Kennedy like getting a fucking uh, injection in his ass while the Bay of Pigs goes on in the background. Yeah, and I'm going to assume that th- less obvious things like syphilis are much more common than 40%. Yeah, but this is like the obvious, obvious ones, you know, the grossest kind that people Google image search when they're in middle school or whatever. Yeah, or the shit they show you, you know, to make sure that like uh, you pay attention in, uh, in fucking health class in seventh yeah, grade. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Bly, by all accounts, is horrified by his men's hedonism because he was a stuck-up prick. And of course, by his account, he never partook. And I don't believe that for a fucking second because they were there for <laughs> they were there for five fucking months. <laughs> now there was some attempts by Bly to beat his men back into line while they're on the island because he realized that not only were his men slowly not becoming sailors, they were stopping being English, which is the best thing you can do. <laughs> Another pro tip uh, from uh, Lions Led by Donkeys, uh, you know, stop being English whenever you can. <laughs> uh, floggings, which are rarely administered during the voyage uh, by everybody's admission, uh, were incredibly common. Some some points being one per day. Uh, remember, remember, this isn't a crew of hundreds. This is 40 some odd dudes having... I actually now believe that uh, Bly never partook while he was there because it seems like this was just a kink thing for him. Yeah, maybe he, the floggings were the goal for him. Yeah, like he was just like a sadomasochist. Like that was... I thought that it was just a baseline for naval officers. I mean, there's also that. But I mean, you know, my dude was definitely like getting his rocks off and like getting a dude flogged every day. And remember, this is like a this is a communal violence. Uh, the goal is to do it in front of everybody. But now that crowd that you're flogging people in front of includes other people's literal wives and children. So this is uh, not popular. Uh, well, not children yet. There will be children involved at some point. <laughs> Many Tahitian women are now pregnant, though. <laughs> but remember, like the the population of uh, of this local population of Tahitians were, was it was an exchange based relationship. Also, they're very very close. A lot of them are friends. So it's like, why is this guy beating my friends? And also, the embarrassment of being beaten in front of your friends who are not sailors. And also, like you know, you're living in what is otherwise like you know, it's not you're not like bashing your head against the wall against a bunch of storm clouds off the you know the off cape horn or something like you know you're on a literal tropical island in a comparative paradise and still getting your fucking ass kicked it seemed other than bly and a few others because there's a uh, there's a core group of bly loyalists that looks at the other sailors like they're disgusting the vast majority of men like rapidly assimilated to to, to to Tahitian life because it was much nicer than what they were used to. Even before the Navy, life on the fucking harbor in 1700s England had to be fucking miserable. <laughs> I've never been to Devon, England, uh, but I can only imagine it's probably not as nice as Tahiti. Yeah, I, I feel comfortable saying that. Yeah. Uh, if you are from Devon, England, please do write in. I, we won't read it, but please do write in. I mean, I can say from someone that's from 
I assume the Devon version of the U.S., which is like shitty Rust Belt Midwest region. That Hawaii is much nicer. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I spent two years on a boat and you know out of Gloucester, and I got to say, uh, Tahiti probably nicer than Gloucester. Yeah, I, I feel like that's not a hot take. Yeah, no, no Duncans on Tahiti though, unfortunately. <laughs> I now have a calling. <laughs> I know what my retirement plan is going to be. Now, this did lead to the crew pretty much saying, fuck this, or at least one part of it. On on the 5th of January, 1789, three members of the crew, Charles Churchill, William Moosebret, and John Millward deserted. They took a small boat, some weapons and, uh, and ammo, and went to try to escape into, to one of the other neighboring islands. And they were captured three weeks later, had the shit beat out of them and whipped, and put back on the ship's crew. And normally, they'd get hung for this, but I guess they realized, like, we only have 46 people. We're going to need all of them to get back. <laughs> and, you know, and the doctor's definitely going to kill another couple guys on the way home. So, you know, you got oh, yeah. to have some spares. Now, the, like I said, a lot of the men got married. Uh, this included Master Mate Christian. Uh, a, a lot of guys got tattoos, which were, like, new to them. Uh, and drugs were very prevalent. Um, I don't know what drugs they used because... The name's never given. I assume they're smoking something, doing some hallucinogen, whatever it was. They're doing a fuckload of it, uh, which I, I I support enthusiastically. Get tattoos, do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> However, the time in paradise had come to an end in April of 1789 when they had to load all of their trees, which were now like hundreds and hundreds of trees, and finally leave. As they shoved off, Bly had apparently lost his motherfucking mind. Now, before he was an asshole, but he wasn't outside the baseline of a normal Royal Marine asshole or Royal Navy asshole, rather yeah, Royal Marines would- himself asshole too, but he just wasn't one of them um, <laughs> that turned from just a being a dick in charge to being a paranoid lunatic during the last five months, the brutal discipline of the Navy had worn off no matter how much he had tried at the end of the day, they're all going to go back to their sweet fucking huts, do drugs, get tattoos and, and fuck locals. Like they didn't have to worry about Bly whatsoever. So, right. By the time they got back on the ship, they wanted none of his bullshit. Nobody seemingly wanted to leave. Um, and they were everybody was pretty bummed out about having to go back uh, or having to finish their delivery, rather. Yeah. I mean, like, it'd bad, be bad enough, like, you know, <laughs> like, already bad getting on the ship and then, like, going back to, like, fucking England from Tahiti. And it seemed like rather than just trying to go back to a a level of normal that existed beforehand, he cranked the discipline up to a level uh, that nobody had ever seen before in order to try to shock them back in the line. Yeah. Now, most of this constantly trickled down to master mate Christian, who remember was kind of his friend at first. Uh, and he started being accused of things without evidence, uh, leading to various punishments. All of these in front of his men. Remember, he's supposed to be in He's one of the shift leaders. He's the night shift leader. Yeah. Uh, so, like, this is happening in front of his sailors. Oh, so so he was like the DWO, like the like the deck officer for like night. I guess uh, now um, the way it was explained was Bly had uh, shifted the uh, the bounty shift into three. Okay. Which allowed them to have more is three or four either way. Yeah. Uh, allowed them to have more sleep nowadays. Like uh, standing like a four hour watch is more standard. Yeah, they. I mean, to apply his credit, he did try to keep, like get men as much sleep as they could. Yeah, uh, but but this also led to incredibly isolated shifts. So like the shift leaders were in charge of them with no captain oversight whatsoever, which yeah. makes them very easy to like whip up a mutiny. 
what I imagine you wouldn't even like necessarily see your captain, you know, for like a week right. at a time or something. You know, you know that motherfucker's not working night shift. Now, according to uh, someone who's considered a, an expert on the bounty, an author named Sven Woolrose, the captain was, quote, fault-finding, insulting, petty, and condescending. And uh, he seemed to relish in humiliating all of his officers. Uh, Bly seems, like I said, he seemed to have fallen into some kind of crazed paranoia. With every small problem launching him screaming at people, throwing things, attacking people, accusing others of broad plots against him or the ship. And then like once he burned himself out, he just tried to like return to a normal conversation with the person he was just yelling at like nothing happened. Which is you know, not great. Uh, that's not how you build confidence. <laughs> Not not super comforting, if we're honest. And another incident happened on 22nd of April, 1789. The bounty arrived in one of the islands of Tonga called Namuka. They used these stops to pick up wood for repairs, fresh water, meat for supplies, whatever. Uh, now, Bly had visited the island with Captain Cook way back in the day and knew that the Tongan population was not the biggest fan of outsiders. And there might be a possibility that like, we, might, we might get in, in, a, in a shooting match. Uh, because we want water and wood or whatever. So he put Christian in charge of the of the watering party uh, to go aboard, find some fresh water, and equipped them with muskets. But at the same time, ordered that the arms be left in the boat instead of being carried ashore because he was worried that carrying the weapons would make them look hostile, despite the fact he knew that the Tongans really would not be fans of them being there in the first place. Now, like clockwork, Christian's party landed and immediately got harassed and continually threatened while on the island, but uh, were unable to defend themselves because he had followed orders like he should have and left the guns behind on the boat on the beach. Yeah. Now, the Tongans chased them away and he returned to the ship with his task incomplete and was cursed by Bly as, quote, a damned cowardly rascal. <laughs> Now, there's further fault that fell on him because in the rush to get the fuck away from the Tongans before, you know, they got murdered, uh, they left behind an anchor and an ads. A what? Uh, An ads. It looks kind of like a hoe uh, used to, like, uh, take layers of wood off of trees. Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, And, yeah, this is considered, like, he fucked up and those things got stolen. So, technically, in in that mindset, you stole from the ship, which is a very stupid way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, you left gear adrift, and so now it's your fault. And I mean, right. do they? I'm sure, like at this point, they probably even like charge motherfuckers for it. Uh, I I can't imagine he's being paid all that much. I assume they just hit him with a fucking can of nine tails a couple of times. <laughs> and uh, the last straw seemed to be when Bly accused him of stealing coconuts in the captain's private supply, with no evidence, no idea if he actually did that or not. But it seems not that serious, even if he did. <laughs> now. Bly punished the entire crew for this alleged theft, stopping their rum ration and reducing their food supply by half, which seems to be a step-by-step guide on how to start a mutiny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) uh, you're going to take the booze away and your food. Anyway, uh, you know, enjoy the next, like, 6,000 miles journey. Yeah, everybody cold, sober, and starving. Now, this eventually led Christian, who would uh, be in charge of the night shift on the boat, to break into the arms room, steal virtually every musket on board, and hand it off to people that he knew that he could trust. After 27 days at sea, Christian and around 14 other sailors, armed with the only guns on the ship, kicked in the captain's door and took him captive, with Christian apparently telling him, quote, Sir, your abuse is so bad, I cannot do my duty with any pleasure. I've been through hell for weeks with you. So... And like, but other people said that like Christian was emotionally, uh, like was very emotional when he did this because he was close to Bly and like he was almost crying. But another person said that uh, he carried a, a, a 
what's it called? A uh, the thing that you drop overboard to measure the depth. Oh, like a depth sounder. Yeah, he carried it around his neck. Uh, so, it, like, if his plot failed, he could just jump overboard and kill himself. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because they usually. Oh, fuck, I forget what it's called right now. But yeah, it's like a uh, lead line. I think is what yeah, it's called. Yeah, he he had that. Well, he had one of those tied around his neck so he could rapidly kill himself should his plot <laughs> fail. <laughs> just fucking yeet himself overboard, which is dedication. Uh, now chaos ensued as the ship's crew split into two factions: one loyal to Bly and the other determined to desert. However. One's loyal to Bly decided not to put up much of a fight on the kind of, you know, the other guy having all the guns. So several of the mutineers just wanted to shoot the loyalists and have it be done with, but Christian decided on another route. Mastermate, now turned surprise captain, put the captain and 18 other men on a boat, gave them some rations and a sextant to help them navigate and set the boat adrift. Um, the boat's also been described as dangerously overweight. So, you know, a lot of people read this as um, being a death sentence with extra steps. Um, but he gave them like hundreds of pounds of food and water. Yeah. Not to mention Bly may have been an asshole. He was also a very good captain um, because if he wanted to kill him, he just don't give him any supplies <laughs> or a yeah. sextant for that matter. It's like a James Bond ass like fucking plot. You know, like, you know, Christian over there like, oh, I bet you want to know where we're headed next, don't you? Bly's like, no, I don't really care. He's like, well, I'm going to tell you now. And like, you know, <laughs> just like going into like his intricate plot of like, where they're going to go and what they're going to do. Like, I just want to make sure you have all this information because I'm sure that you're going to be dead in like 10 minutes. How do you, do you expect me to find land with the sextant? No, captain, I expect you to die. <laughs> but obviously this didn't work uh, because we have Bly's book. Uh, now Bly male have been an insane, paranoid asshole, but he was a very good captain. First, he piloted the small boat towards Tonga to a different Island where he'd all, he'd previously met the ruler again with cook. Now, these locals immediately tried to murder them, succeeding in stoning to death their quartermaster before the rest of the crew was able to escape. Um, <laughs> they eventually made their way to Restoration Island, then a further 1,100 nautical miles to the British-controlled port of Kupang in, in Timor. Uh, there, which is, this is a you know a British territory, so he's like, hey, I'm the captain of the motherfucking bounty, and that shit got stolen from me. He then made a list of everybody on board that was responsible, starting with, quote, Captain Fletcher, age 24 years, 5'9 high, dark, swarthy complexion. <laughs> <laughs> now, back with the mutiny, things were not going great. They knew that there was a chance the mutiny would uh, would be found out, uh, you know, the chance that uh, that Bly would survive in, in, in some way being pretty high. Oh, and another small side note here. When they finally did get to Kupang or Kupang in Timor, like half of the people that made the trip died immediately <laughs> from like disease, the humidity. <laughs> like, man, how'd you escape through all of that and drop dead when you were safe? Oh, man, that fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and not to mention, Christian was pretty open with like, hey, our last port of call is Tahiti. The first place they look is going to be Tahiti. We cannot fucking stay here. They will find us. So they went to a nearby island of Tubai, uh, around 400 miles south of Tahiti. And uh, now the islanders of Tubai responded to the strange bolt boat full of white people with immediate war, as you should generally do. <laughs> sending out war canoes to chase them off. However, Christian had all the guns and fired on them with a cannon, driving them away. For some reason, uh, through Christian's, I don't know, uh, thinking process, he decided that despite that these people clearly not wanting them there, this is the perfect place to colonize, as a boat full of English people would think. <laughs> 
Now, there's a small problem with all of this, though. There's only 46 of them, or there's, sorry, there's only like 18 of them now. We don't have enough people to start a colony. So they needed help. Uh, they went back to Tahiti and told the king that he, Bly, and Captain Cook, who has been dead for decades at this point, uh, <laughs> who the king knew personally, uh, were all starting a colony on the island of Udataki. And uh, the king knew from experience that dealing with Cook and Bly meant that he would be handsomely rewarded, which Bly did. I mean, him and Cook did a lot of fucked up things, specifically Cook. That's why he got fucking speared to death. But, you know, kings that did work with him before they were alienated by, you know, him kidnapping people were generally just had shit lavished upon them to buy their friendship. So, like, yeah. the, the king and, and Tahiti was like, yeah, we're... Uh, you take as many people as you want. Women, men, we don't care. I'll get the bag at some point and whatever. I'll probably get rid of some people I don't like anyway, so fuck it. Yeah, exactly. So labor, laborers, women, supplies, uh, all got loaded back onto the bounty. It ended up being around 30 men and women. And for the next two months, Christian and his forces struggled to establish themselves on Dubai. They began to construct a moat enclosure and called it Fort George after the King of Britain, ironically enough, and uh, secured a fortress uh, I mean, using that term loosely, but I can't imagine like thinking that a moat, like if someone's going to track you down over thousands of fucking miles, like over o- empty ocean, you think like a fucking moat's going to stop them? <laughs> we took a boat <laughs> like, all the way. Th- we took a boat all the way to Udataki Island, and this hand-built moat is going to stop us. Yeah, like just like getting to like this, like you know, like probably like four foot deep, fucking six foot wide moat. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, well, I guess we're going to go back home now. Never mind. Shake your fist at him, Earl. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, plopping down on this island full of people that already hated them, and you know he made things worse by firing a cannon at them and reportedly killing dozens of them. This just meant constant, unrelenting war to include a pitched battle that killed sixty islanders. So things weren't going great on this island. Eventually, this made Christian unpopular in his own crew, and since he had taken power in a mutiny, he probably knew where this was going, and it was not going to end well for him. <laughs> so he uh, organized the meeting to discuss the future plans and offered like the, the conclusion to come down to a vote. Eight remained loyal to Christian, that being like hardcore active mutineers, probably knowing like if we get caught, we are definitely swinging from a rope. But 16 voted to return to Tahiti and take their chances there. Small problem, though. By the time they got back to Tahiti, it became pretty obvious to the king that these fucking assholes had lied to his goddamn face. (laughs) A good reason for that being that, like, other British and French boats come by from time to time, and a British boat came by while they were gone. And, like, the king is like, hey, did you hear about this settlement that Captain Cook is starting over on Udataki Island? And the British guy's like, that motherfucker's been dead for years. What are you you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So it did not make him very popular. Uh, And Christian knew he had to get back, uh, like, kind of in the good graces of Tahiti, uh, especially the Tahitian king. But also, he still could not stay there. Now, of the 16 who voted to go back to Tahiti, he allowed 15 to go with that one held back being the ship's armor who he decided i kind of need you yeah um one last parting gift to boost everybody up and to be friends with the king again christian hosted a party aboard the bounty uh inviting the entire island to come aboard to drink and do whatever the hell people in the 1700s do for fucking fun i assume fucking a lot and of course most of the people who showed up were women because they realized they, i mean that's what their relationship was is you know exchanged base for sex and goods. Yeah, they hosted a frat party. 
Yeah, pretty much. And this ended up being around 20 people, 14 of whom were women. Uh, two of those women being senior citizens. This part will become important in a little bit. Uh, now, once everybody was on board and the people who decided they were going to stay in Tahiti were off, Christian cut the mooring lines and they slowly floated away from Tahiti, kidnapping everybody. Did, they, did this also include like the original, like however many other like islanders do? Like, are they also still on board? No, uh, those okay. guys seem to have get it, gotten back off because they kind of realized, like, hey, man, fuck these guys. Right. Um, uh, and that this also included the armorer realizing what was going on, immediately jumped overboard and swam to shore. Uh, so he lost his armor and gained, um, you know, 20 kidnapping victims, uh, though he did stop by an, another nearby island and drop off the two senior citizens almost assuredly to their own deaths um, because they were all alone. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, good, good. Christian, good guy all around. Yeah. Now, the mutineers who remained on Tahiti would eventually be captured by the British when they came back around. I believe it was aboard the Pandora. When the Pandora showed up, almost all of them had totally assimilated to, to island life. Uh, that didn't stop the English from arresting them all, uh, with the Pandora taking a slight detour to run into the Great Northern Reef and drown three of them. <laughs> yeah. all these guys are so fucking good at being on the ocean yes yeah. part of the thing that is wonderful about the british empire is it just is like such an incredible comedy of errors it's like the fucking mr burns thing in the simpsons where all the viruses are trying to get through the one door but they can't so they're all stuck that's like all these fucking dipshits and like you know trying to take over like all these countries around the world and it's kind of like never managing to fuck up quite enough that they lose everything but like just constant comedy of errors yeah and it, a lot of it is um like experience through attrition like well if you made it this far you must know what you're doing or you'd be dead <laughs> now uh in september of 1792 the 10 men who had been brought back to england to face court martial remember three of them are dead and i think another one of them died on tahiti before they got there from like i don't know shooting his brains out from some foodborne illness, probably. They were brought back to England for courts martial. Under English law, any man who remained on a ship during a mutiny, regardless whether or not he actually participated in it, was guilty of mutiny. So a lot of these guys who were on the boat like didn't necessarily take part. They're just like, well, I'm going to stay out of this one. Those guys have guns and I live on this boat. So, uh, But four were acquitted. That's mostly because Bly vouched for them and said, like, you know, they had nothing to do with it. Six were sentenced to death by hanging. Of those six, three were pardoned, and the other three, Thomas Burkett, John Millward, and Thomas Ellison, were all executed on October 29th, 1794. So, staying on Tahiti, bad idea. So, let's go back to the bounty and see where they had ended up. Back with the bounty, the total crew now made up of eight original sailors and 20 kidnapping victims, uh, while Christian decided their ultimate destination would be Pitcairn <laughs> Island. Just like a very early uh, example of getting ratioed. <laughs> <laughs> now, Pitcairn is a weird destination because it was an idea more than a place that people actually knew about. Uh, and which that's why it was perfect for what he was looking for. Now, the island had been first reported in 1767, but nobody was 100% sure of its location. The reason for that is discovered, you know, a lot of places are quote unquote discovered by European sailors or whatever by like landing there and being like, look, we're on an island. Let's name it after you, Steve. But that's not how Pitcairn got put on European maps for the first time. A boat had simply floated by it and a deckhand with the last name Pitcairn, but like, look, land! And then they named it after him and then kept going. 
once again, comedy of errors. Like just yeah. like, oh, wait, why is it called Steve Island? Well, you see, Steve was the only guy who was, who was like, you know, he was out on the back deck masturbating one day, and we just happened to see the island go by, and he said, hey, look, and now it's called Steve Island. Yeah, and because of that, nobody was 100% sure where the fuck the island was. Uh, and it, it they put it on the map anyway, and so they went on the map, looked up where Pitcairn Island was thought to be, and couldn't find it um, because it was never actually located by anybody before. It took the crew a couple months of sailing around in circles to finally run into it. And when they did, they found <laughs> it was 216 miles east of the position thought to be on the map. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my losses be lessons. <laughs> <laughs> now, despite this being kind of funny, and it is, this actually made their hideout even better because if somebody looked on the map, they wouldn't be able to fucking find them. <laughs> we can't even find where we are. Fuck. <laughs> now the pit cairns were uninhabited at the time. Uh, there were there was some Polynesian settlers there who had, had ended up there at one point in time, attempted to colonize it, either died off or realized this place sucked and left. But when they showed up, nobody lived there. There was volcanic soil that made you know farming uh, okay, and it was surrounded by ocean, so you could fish constantly. And it was in the middle of fucking nowhere, so you freedom to do whatever the hell you wanted. So with nothing else left to lose and nowhere to go, they stripped the bounty of anything useful and then sank that bitch in the bay, uh, which is where the bay gets its name today. It's now Bounty Bay. It's still under there. <laughs> so, uh, over the years, I think people have kind of like port- d- dived down there and ported it out to try to sell it because... Oh, I'm sure. Because like, yeah. you know, this is also like before modern, like, you know, before modern rules about that sort of shit. Yeah. And even the original people who like settled on the island too, like I'm sure that they probably had points where they were like, I don't know, man. We need some like some fucking wood or you know some fittings or something. Like, let's dive on that bitch and see what we got. Not to mention selling it off for just money as well. Yeah. Now, however, the chill life the sailors in Tahitian shared on Tahiti was rapidly going to change. Now, without having to appease a Tahitian king that they kind of sort of worked for, the English did what they did best and got racist as fuck. No. <laughs> is that the British Empire's entry music? <laughs> now, uh, the, the Tahitian men were expected to work for the white men, and the women were expected to be passed around to use sexual property on demand. I, I am I am shocked, shocked to hear about this turn of events. This was not at all how things had been on Tahiti. Uh, so the Tahitian men in particular were like, what, what the fuck? Now, according to one of the men named Alexander, now Alexander goes by a couple names. He's actually mostly named, known as John Adams. And Alexander is one of the two names he had. He ends, up, he ends up being the last original member of the bounty to survive. And he said, quote, women were passed around from one husband to another. Uh, now, if you're asking what the fuck does that mean? Uh, with the white men all declaring themselves the collective husband of all of the Tahitian women. Oh, weird how that works out. Uh, yeah. Uh, and no, in case you're wondering, it did not work the other way around. <laughs> Tahitian oh, men did not have the same freedom. Huh, weird. And, you know, I, there's nothing positive to say here about the existence of the women here on this island, except fuck um and the women were also expected to work the only people really not expected to work were white men now specifically one tahitian man named who was uh singled out for constant violent abuse uh, and nobody's really sure why uh other than he didn't fight back uh, and this only got worse when the white men named mccoy figured out how to make brandy from some island roots jesus fucking christ which is the last thing the situation needed. <laughs> this is like a speed run of like everything that's bad about fucking like European colonialism. Like, you know, even like absent like an actual like system of like outside like imperialism, like 
Ah, oh, cool. This is just what you guys default to, huh? <laughs> what if Lord of the Flies had a profit margin? <laughs> it was like it was like full grown fucking adults who like should have had like some level of ethics, like you know, to not do this sort of shit. Yeah, and not to mention, remember these guys all lived peacefully together on Tahiti. Um, this like now I use the term peaceful, you know, uh, uh, relatively. Yeah, I mean there was obviously like a power dynamic and like you know whatever. Right, and if they tried this shit, they would have the shit flogged out of them by their captain because they'd piss off the Tahitian king, which may have made their work impossible. I mean, they they weren't just nice. They were they were kept in line with violence, and now that violence is gone. They're going to be sailors, and they're more specifically, they're going to be English sailors. Yeah. And there also seem to be a fuckload of these roots on the island because McCoy seemed to have a constant, unlimited supply of brandy until he died. Now, at one point, and he would get blind drunk and just get violent as shit. At one point, a woman was sent off to go fishing, which was specifically McCoy's job, which he refused to do and made women to go do it instead. And when she didn't catch enough fish, he bit her ear off. Ah, the Mike Tyson. Yeah. Now, McCoy decided to put a vote uh, as like very weird apartheid level democracy is rapidly forming on the island. He exploited women that he enslaved, created some sort of three-fifths voting system. I mean, really all he uh, fucked up doing is he didn't write a constitution and he would, you know, he could be uh, revered as a founding father to this very day. Yeah. um, Unfortunately, um, one of these men is, uh, John Adams specifically, uh, the only town in Pitcairn Islands known as Adamstown to this very day. Ah, good. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, now, they held a vote. They voted that all land would be divided among the seamen, that being the original sailors, not the Polynesians that had come with them. Uh, and that's all arable land would be given to white men specifically. The Polynesians would have nothing. Now, Fletcher Christian, for all of his various flaws, strongly objected and voted against this, pointing out that, you know, we're... We all came from that being Tahiti, not England, mind you, that, you know, in Tahiti, a landless man is deemed an outcast and had no place in society. And that was clearly not how we wanted to run our island. He voted against it and every other white man voted for it, meaning it passed. Now, this might surprise you, Shocks. Uh, the, the, the Tahitian men did not take this very well. Oh, really? Huh? I can't imagine why. Uh, just watching a bunch of white dudes go, eh, nah, it's, it's fine, though. Like, uh, we, we all got land and uh, we'll, we'll make sure that uh, you live here, maybe. Yeah, you work for us. We have the guns. Right. Now, this led to what is now known as Massacre Day. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's my favorite day out of the calendar. Yeah. You know, you have Monday, you have Tuesday. Those are okay. Wednesday, you got to get over hump day right into Massacre Day. <laughs> this, is the, this is the worst fucking Morrissey song I ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> now, the four remaining Tahitian men stole some muskets and decided amongst themselves they would kill every fucking Englishman on the island, or at least everybody they can get their hands on. Within hours, they beheaded Martin and Mills, shot Williams and Brown, and Christian was ambushed while working in his field and hacked to death with axes while reportedly shouting, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. What a fucking embarrassing way to die. <laughs> I think we've made it abundantly clear that these Englishmen fucking sucked. Uh, however, the Tahitian women in their lives, like they were all married. Love them, and they did not like the idea of these of their husbands being murdered. So then, the Tahitian wives of the murdered men killed the Tahitian men back, leaving only a group of Tahitian women and a few Englishmen. Uh, now, the leadership position which Christian previously held, you know, with him dead, fell into two men: one named John Adams, sometimes known as Alexander, and a guy named Ned Young. 
who were apparently the only two semi-decent men left in the entire crew of the bounty. And I use the term decent very loosely. Right. The two not obviously like psychopathic and homicidal. Right. Uh, well, hold on to the homicidal part. Now, one problem was solved because McCoy was still alive and McCoy <laughs> was the biggest dickhead in the entire group. This problem was solved by him committing suicide by jumping off a nearby cliff. <laughs> I was going to say, would you say, but then it gets worse? Uh, not yet. Um, <laughs> I am uh, McCoy killed, killed himself by jumping off a cliff. Though some people say he was kicked off like his Sparta or whatever. He's got midsummered off that bitch. And then Matthew Quintal, who was rapidly going insane. Most people blame the fact that he was drinking more of the root brandy than water at this point. <laughs> and also, once again, probably had like, you know, like 15 kinds of syphilis and 18 kinds of clap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I assume almost everybody in this island has syphilis at this point. Yeah. Um, now, Quintal was just threatening people, going off the wall, doing crazy shit. So he's eventually... Uh, invited over to the home of, of of Ned Young and John Adams, where they probably murdered him with an axe in, in 1798. Did he like Huey Lewis in the news? <laughs> hey, Paul. <laughs> and then a cu- then two years after that, Young died of an asthma attack. This led, because uh, he had the surgeon round to bleed him to death. <laughs> what a fucking embarrassing way to die. Like, you know, just like you go through all that shit and all that fucking bloodletting and then you just like die of a fucking asthma attack. After all of this time, yeah, a mutiny, a small island-based race war, Devin asthma attack. <laughs> this meant in 1808, when an American whaling ship was drawn to the island by a, a cooking fire smoke column, uh, they were kind of shocked to see it was a small group of nine women and 19 children, all led by oh. one lone white guy. Adams, uh, who had decided to start educating them all using a single Bible that had survived from the bounty, teaching them all literacy and the word of God while knocking up all of them twice. Nobody's sure how many of these kids are his, but probably all of them. (laughs) Uh, Once again, this is just this is a fucking English Empire speed run. Like we're just like now we're on the Bible and like missionary section, like just like doing the whole whole thing just in the course of like five years. I did kind of speak uh, incorrectly. Adams, most of those kids are Adams. A lot of them are Christians as well. Uh, but there seems to be really, at most, only three different possible fathers. Uh, I mean, that being Christian, Adams, and Ned Young. I mean, it's fine. I called the Morrissey song or Cure Song a Morrissey song earlier. So we all. <laughs> now, word got back to England sometime around 1810 that, like, yeah, we just found this fucking island full of people out here. And they all said they're. They were from the bounty, or at least one guy was from the bounty. Uh, but it wasn't until 1814 that some British ships actually made it out that way and discovered that now the population was 46. <laughs> Remember, all of these people have to be inbred at this point, other than the, <laughs> than the couple like original women. One of the people who greeted them was Thursday, October Christian the first, who was Fletcher Christian's <laughs> son. Now you're probably wondering, that's a fucking Portland ass name, right? That's also just like all the words that he still knew. <laughs> now Fletcher Christian's son was given that name because Fletcher Christian reportedly said, quote, I don't want to name my son after anything that would remind me of England. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, <laughs> I can support. <laughs> now, over the years, a few more people would show up at the island because, you know, the word got out about this weird collection of an 
strange inbred Puritan cult on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. When you go to the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Islands, you want to see the freak show. I mean, you know, yeah, you it's like see- when you go to Utah. <laughs> People showed up at most in like onesies and twosies. Uh, nothing that would make hitting a population of nearly 50 impossible without some serious cousin fucking at minimum. Probably more closely related than that. Yeah, yeah probably not at minimum. Probably a maximum. Yeah, this led to a problem of overcrowding in 1831, and the islanders asked the British government to resettle some of them on Tahiti to lower the population. They did. And these islanders, who had never left the island before, quickly died of disease when they reached Tahiti, because they had no immune system, which to speak of, and also all the inbreeding probably killed it. (laughs) Now, the ones that didn't die were revolted at life in Tahiti, because remember, their entire society was built around a single Bible and a whole lot of incest. (laughs) <laughs> and the only real education they received was in Bible literacy. So they were virtually Puritans. And like they dubbed Tahiti, quote, full of immorality, saloons, vile dancing, gambling, and scarlet women. And they immediately returned to Pitcairn Island. <laughs> I'm taking my three cousin wives and I'm leaving. This place disgusts me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, at one point in 1832, a guy named Joshua Hill showed up, claiming to be an agent of the British government, and made himself leader. He banned booze and ordered people in prison for the slightest infraction. Now, this is a problem because they didn't have a jail or really even written laws. So, really, no crime had ever occurred there because nothing was illegal. (laughs) Now, they didn't decide to write any laws down until 1838, which happened to be the same year that they kicked Hill off the island. Now, the island officially became a British colony in 1838, and somehow people still live there to this day, with the population hovering around the mid-50s, all of whom are related. During like the World War II era, this population peaked in the hundreds, and they had to like get rid of some of them, because there's not enough land for them all. And I say, when I say get rid of them, there wasn't like some kind of mass calling. Uh, they just mo- <laughs> Most of them moved back to like other well, parts of England. And to be clear, too, it, there was no mass calling, comma, again. Again, yeah, that already <laughs> happened once. Now, this this jumps us to, to the modern day, kind of. Pitcairn Island is, what can I say? Uh, I'll say this the, the most, the nicest way I can think of. It's a weird place. Uh, now, <laughs> for one, until 2001 on the, anyway, uh, the island had one cop. Uh, he was British. Uh, <laughs> they, they would have a, a, a temporary, uh, like, loaned cop it was like a like a very like restricted tour of duty yeah they had to volunteer for it it was considered like a quirky thing to do for i think it was a year at a time yeah uh, that has now increased to two and they're on loan from new zealand as of 2008 so you know how we said earlier it was going to get worse at the end this is the part much, where it gets worse yeah it gets much worse real quick in 2004 one third of the entire island population was arrested for sexual assault uh <laughs> It's like it's like the Boston Archdiocese in the nineties. Now this happened because cops were always outsiders, like the like Brits on assignment, now Kiwis. Uh, but this happened with a Brit with it when the British cops were rotating through. I believe they have some local assistants, like they call them then constables or whatever. Yeah, you're like a citizen on patrol or like some bullshit. Yeah, but the the British cop was the cop, the customs agent, immigration. They were literally everything. This is an island of fifty people. You don't exactly need that many people to do this job. So. There was probably a lot of very easy way to keep things out of their eye. Uh, Maybe some wanton ignorance because you're trapped on a remote island with a population of people who are all related. So if you try to like arrest somebody for something, you're going to get murdered. Like (laughs) you're just going to disappear. Nobody will ever know about it. 
So one cop named Gail Cox, who's a, who's a British cop from Kent, discovered that over the years, widespread sexual crimes involving children were just kind of accepted within the island's population. Not only accepted, but like instituted. In Institutionalized. Like, yes. Yeah, Other yeah. cops either somehow didn't notice or simply did not bother to report it. A study of island records confirmed anecdotal evidence that most girls bore their first child between the ages of 12 and 15. Quote, I think the girls were conditioned to accept that this this was a man's world. And once they turned 12, they were eligible, said a guy named Neville Tosin, who was a pastor at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is the only church on the island. Uh, And he was like there for a couple of years at a time. Yeah. Quote, mothers and grandmothers were resigned to the situation, telling him that they're own childhood experience had been the same. They regard it as just a part of life on Pitcairn. One grandmother wondered what all the fuss was about. So when cool. Gail Cox actually investigated a 15-year-old girl who filed a rape charge in, in 2000, I think it was 1999 or something, she decided to investigate it. And she rapidly learned that every single level of Pitcairn Island society and ev- almost every person there was somehow connected in one way or another to this crime or others just like it. Um, this include the island's mayor, Steve Christian. Yes, related to that Christian. Not to mention, all of these rapes are also incest because they're all related. Yeah. I mean, this is like essentially like one large like grooming gang. Like, yeah. More or less. Like, like, and like not in, not in the pejorative like racist sense, but like an actual fucking grooming gang. Like that's what this entire thing was. It was just institutionalized, like, you know, uh, pedophilic like incest. It was if Jeffrey Epstein built a society. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, it was Little St. Pitcairn Island. No. Now, people were so worried about this trial that Islanders were ordered to turn over their guns. And in case you're wondering, there's 25 guns on the island, meaning there was half as many guns as people. Um, Those are fucking rookie numbers, let's be honest. There's also another problem. Pitcairn Island, very, very small, 50 people, no administrative support. Like, their administrative um, building is in New Zealand. Uh, So, like, there's no criminal justice capacity on this island, right? So. The British Crown had to pass the Pitcairn Amendment of 2002, which had to be signed into law by the UK, to allow a British criminal trial to be held in New Zealand, since it was closer than bringing a third of the island's population all the way back to the UK. Of the seven men charged, six were found guilty, making this the largest population per capita to ever be tried and found guilty of a crime. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Now, of those, uh, the numbers end up being a full 10% of the island's population were sentenced to some form of prison uh, length. Most of this negligible, like two, three years. And some of these crimes are disgusting. I'm leaving out the details. Um, most of it is is real gross. Uh, and most people got uh, like community service, restitution. A lot of it, like the decision was made, like we literally can't imprison the island. It will die. Uh, we have to let some people back into the island because the way the island works is like on a corvée system for um, maintaining the roads and and running the boats and and everything in the in the island has to be run kind of compulsory. Yeah. There's no real economy to speak of. It's almost completely dependent on UK subsidies. And it, at one point of its history, it, most of its economy is based on selling its domain name, <laughs> like .pn or whatever pi. <laughs> I mean, that's what they really should have done. They should have, you know, just like started up a, uh, you know, a sports betting server farm or something and just like fucking. I'm surprised they haven't. That's like uh, do what Nauru did and just do a do a giant bank fraud. Yeah. Um, 
Um, well, I mean, to be fair, they're not independent nations, so they're part of the UK, so they don't have that much freedom. Uh, so they, they do have to kind of skirt UK laws, I suppose, uh, which again, apparently weren't strict enough to not do any of the things we're talking about. But you know, when the full 10% of the island's population was sentenced to a jail term, and they didn't have a jail. Uh, and they point out like, hey, we can't imprison them in New Zealand. We're not going to bring them all the way back to the UK. They need to be imprisoned on the island. So they had to build a prison. And then because they had no corrections <laughs> officers, New Zealand had to give them those two, uh, who then <laughs> served on the island until all of the sentences were done. And then the prison was closed again. Um, and now there's now a provision uh, in local law that says if for some reason this ever happens again, uh, they can just make any house a prison. Uh, and the cops now from New Zealand, who are also the cops, the customs uh, enforcement um, and immigration, all that are also now corrections officers. So that's cool. What a fucking like depressing, like just everything about that. Once again, just depressing. Now, in case you're wondering if this trial did anything to shake the foundations of rape incest island, you'd be wrong. Sean Christian, yes, also related, um, who was convicted during that trial along with every other member of his family, apparently, was an elected mayor after serving two years in prison. He was then reelected in 2016. So, yeah. Now, the one bright spot here is this society will die. Uh, yeah. Rape incest island is not long for this world. There's zero net immigration because it's one, again, there's no real economy to speak of. Uh, it's incredibly hard to move there even if you want to. Um, and it, because you know, there's 50 people living on the middle of the Pacific Ocean in a crimes land. Um, and uh, almost everybody there's uh, up there in age. Very few children are there. Most people move from the island and never return. Uh, the, the, I, the population is generally given at 50. But there never really seems to be 50 people there at any yeah. given time. Yeah, I think I remember reading about it. Like, you know, it's like 50 people, but usually there's like at least like maybe like a half dozen in like New Zealand or Australia or something. And like, yeah. Nobody really wants to live there. You have to be, yeah. at best, a semi-social hermit. Yeah, if not, like, you know, just like a weird, yeah, a weird hermetic sex pest. Like, you have to, like, look at the film Lighthouse and go, <laughs> I don't know, I think that works for me. Um, I mean, there's very little internet, there's no infrastructure, you get supplies once every three months, which includes your mail. It's not even like it's like a self-sustaining island, either. No, you know it's absolutely I mean? like, not. They would die. Yeah. Yeah, like if it wasn't if it wasn't the continued support of like the British state, like this, like they would not still be there in this like in this day and age. The Pitcairnese Islanders, which I think is what they call themselves, their diaspora did a study and said that at this rate, the island will probably die out by twenty forty five, and that, which means probably is the British government will subsidize moving everybody to somewhere else. <laughs> Ironically, to Diego Garcia. <laughs> But that is the accidental history of the Pitcairn Islands. Um, now, we've gone over an hour here a bit, but so we'll make our question from the Legion here quick. Now, this is actually hilariously prescient for you. What is your worst travel story? <laughs> uh, so Joe's saying that because I uh, I was one of the dumb shits uh, just caught up in. Uh, well, I don't know when you're listening to this. Uh, however, uh, there's currently thousands of flights being uh, delayed and canceled throughout the United States because of, uh, you know, a combination of weather and COVID. And uh, so I ended up having to throw myself on the ultimately on the good graces of a gate agent in order to get back to Boston from Seattle last week. Um, Always a good sign. That's actually probably not my worst travel story. My worst is probably one of the two times I've broken down uh, going cross country 
one of which was a flat tire in Evanston, Wyoming, and the other was a blown water pump in Fillmore, Utah. If you ever do break down in Fillmore, Utah, my best advice is to walk. Uh, they served me the smallest gin and tonic I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> There's one pizza place in the entire town that's shit, and uh, you can only buy 3.2% beer at the gas station. I'm not sure what my worst travel story is, honestly. I, I think I'd have to say... My first deployment to Afghanistan, because whoever planned the flight route is just a madman. So we started off in Fort Hood, Texas. Now, this is normally a straightforward flight. You fly out of Texas or anywhere else in the United States, really, and you go to Germany. Yeah. You might make a stop somewhere in the United States before then. And then from Germany, you fly to, um, at the time, it was Kyrgyzstan. Yep. And a tiny place called Manas. You got another flight, go to Afghanistan. So we start off in Fort Hood. Uh, we flew to bumfuck Egypt somewhere in, in, in Canada. No idea why. Uh, we were not allowed to get off the plane. So I assume it was like a Canadian Air Force base or something. From there, we flew to Maine. <laughs> From Maine, which I think is backwards. But you might have flown to the uh, the airport where uh, infamously everyone got put down on 9-11 or something. <laughs> I know that they handle a lot of like the transatlantic flights. Mm. Uh, I, as in Banger. Uh, and then from Banger, Maine, we went to uh, Germany. From Germany, we went to Romania uh, and one of the weirdest <laughs> airport experiences of my life. So we landed on a tarmac, did not taxi up to the airport. Uh, we were just spat out into the tarmac to wander around confused. Um, the airport was locked. There's nobody there. And then a guy in a tracksuit and a black Mercedes, which I am aware describes about <laughs> 65% of all Eastern European men. Drives up with, with two very scantily clad women in it. Speaks very broken English. He's like, are you trying to get into airport? And, like, and we're all in uniform. We don't have any weapons. You have weapons around the plane. We have no ammunition. And just a guy, like 100 or so American soldiers in the middle of a Romanian airport. And uh, he's like, I will let you in. He unlocks the door. Uh, of this full airport with like gift shops and a bar. And he starts insisting on giving us alcohol, which we're not allowed to have. Uh, gives us cigarettes and stuff. And then we're there for like three fucking hours. We get loaded up back into our plane. From there, we fly to uh, Kyrgyzstan into Manas. Uh, and then from Manas, we flew uh, into Afghanistan. Um, and it was the most roundabout, bizarre fucking trip I've ever made in my life. On the way home, we just went from... Afghanistan, Manas, Germany, Banger, Texas. <laughs> I, well, at least you knew when the guy with the like the uh, tracks or the black out Mercedes showed up. At least you knew you were talking to the boss at that point. <laughs> this is my airport. Also, I am the only one who works here. I'm pretty sure he was a mafia boss and a pimp. Um, oh, but yeah, I mean, I'd be fucking surprised if he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I respect a brother who has a diversified portfolio. <laughs> But Shocks, thank you so much for joining me on this darkly hilarious episode of the Lines Love by Donkeys podcast. Uh, everybody, thank you for listening. You thank you for supporting the show. If you don't support the show, try looking to our Patreon, getting some bonus stuff. It's it's all right. Uh, and if you don't, I will hold it against you. It'll just, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I will because that's uh that's mostly where you'll hear my melodious voice. So yeah, if, that's uh, right. If you don't subscribe to the Patreon, just know that I hate you personally. <laughs> and uh, and, <laughs> and if you if you ever come to Boston, I'll probably, I don't know, like, uh, you know, jeer something in your general direction. Yeah, that's where you hear the zoo crew say weird things about, um, I don't know, uh, everything. Hitler, to be Hitler's nephew. Um, anyway, thank you again, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. And until next time, don't don't go to Pitcairn Islands. Yeah, just don't.